If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely and have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all major chains through easy to use APIs. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure and it ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost in a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in this episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is a very special episode of The Scoop. It is our first episode that we are doing since we have evacuated our offices in Manhattan and we are doing this thing remotely. It's sad that I don't have my dear friend and colleague Ryan Todd sitting here by my side as typically he does, but we will be okay because we have a very awesome guest on Alan Lane, the CEO of Silvergate. A, it's not a cryptocurrency bank per se, right? But they're known for banking hundreds of cryptocurrency customers, exchanges like Kraken and Coinbase. They're based in Southern California. They're best known for Sen, which is their platform that allows various digital asset companies to transfer money over point. $6 billion of transfers have gone through the platform 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You might have seen Silvergate in the news at the end of last year. They took the company public on New York Stock Exchange. And Alan's here to talk about the company, the growth, what they're seeing right now. But I think the most interesting place to start is what happened last week. If you think about the markets right now, we're seeing unprecedented numbers, unprecedented volatility. We had the jobless claim numbers come in today, 3.4 million. The markets rallied in the morning anyway. It's interesting. I mean, the markets are acting in a way that you might not anticipate, but still the pipes and plumbing, right? We talk about this all the time, Ryan and I, about the exchanges, the high-frequency trading firms. They're still up quoting prices, filling orders. The exchanges are still matching and, and doing their job in a way that given this volatility, the VIX up over 80%, hitting limit down, limit ups like it's nobody's business and still the pipes and plumbing for the most part are working. But what's interesting about Silvergate, last week I was getting some of the trading firms, they were pinging me about this issue with sending outbound transfers to Fedwire through Silvergate. And it raised so many interesting questions for me in terms of the friction that exists in the banking world, even still today. And Alan was so great about being transparent and working with us on, on a story about that and keeping us updated as their payments processor came back online. And for the audience who may not be familiar with the intricacies of these payment networks, I think we could sort of jump in there, walk us through what happened? I know you were so, I mean, you're still going into the office, you're, you know, brothers in arms with some of the folks on the engineering side who are obviously there keeping the systems up and running. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Excited to chat. Yeah, thanks, Frank. So, yeah, where, where to start, right? First of all, I want to thank you for reaching out on Friday uh, to try to get the story of, of what was happening directly from us. And so, Stepping back for just a second, during your introduction, you mentioned the SEN, the Silvergate Exchange Network. And the great thing about the Silvergate platform is that throughout that entire issue that we had with our wire transfer processor, the Silvergate Exchange Network was up and running. And so if you are a customer of Silvergate and you were already, you already had US dollars in your account at Silvergate or at an exchange that is part of the SEN, then you were able to continue to transact over the SEN 24-7 right through the weekend. Uh, and so many of our customers probably didn't even know what was happening on the wire system because unless you were trying to get money in or out, unless you're trying to get US dollars into Silvergate or out of Silvergate, 
then you were trading in the crypto ecosystem just fine. And it's that friction that you were alluding to, which is what we have spent the last six years trying to reduce. And so the SEN is part of that. But obviously, in order to get money in and out, we still have to touch the broader financial system, right? And and so our primary way of getting money into and out of our platform is via the, the Fed wire system. And every bank in the country that is connected to the Fed is connected through some channel. We use a third-party payment processor. They're a global company. They have over 5,000 installs all around the world. The name of the company is Finastra. And on early Friday morning, they detected some anomalies. It was essentially a cyber attack on their system. And as they attempted to quarantine it, they decided that the safest course of action to keep all of all of our systems, their systems, our systems, to keep everybody safe, was to just pull the plug and shut it down. That obviously had a tremendous negative impact on our customers and on the banks that Finastra services all over the world that were trying to interact with the Fed wire system through the Finastra connection. Um, and so we immediately started to try to ascertain, okay, was there any any harm to Silvergate and to our customers? And once we determined that there wasn't, then we worked with Finastra to get the system up and running. We worked around the clock all weekend. And by early Monday morning, we were reconnected with the Fed. It's our understanding that we were one of the first banks in the country to get reconnected with the Fed. And I was on a conference call yesterday morning. So we're recording this on Thursday, March 26th. On Wednesday, the 25th, I was on a conference call with senior leadership at Finastra. And um, they indicated that they were 95%, 95% of their installs, their customers around the world had been reconnected, which means that there were 5% as of yesterday morning that were still working to get reconnected. And so the fact that 48 hours previous to, to that on Monday morning, we were able to get connected is a real testament to both the team at Silvergate, as well as the team at Finastra who worked with our team all weekend long to make sure that we were able to open up for business on Monday morning and continue to service our customers. I think that's a really succinct, well said explanation of, of what went down. Looks like we lost him. <laughs> yep. I saw the video freeze, but it froze a couple yeah. times before. I'm back. Yo, yo. So it's Still funny. look good, Frank. So it's funny, right? So I just cut out for a few minutes because the Wi-Fi in my sister's apartment is less than ideal. But I think it speaks to a similar trend we're seeing across the market, right? How do you address issues like, I mean, something as simple as Wi-Fi going down during a podcast interview to fixing a system with your payments provider to making a complex trade if you're on a sell side desk. The fact that we're, you know, spread apart, working remote, working with less than ideal technical setups makes this market climate all the more interesting. And I know we were talking about it on the phone last week about how thankfully you had your Edwire guys in, but most of the people at the bank, I assume, are working remote. Yeah, so we actually started financial institutions, federally insured and regulated financial institutions in, in the U.S. are required to have business continuity plans. Um, one of the types of potential disruptions we're supposed to consider is a global pandemic or a, a pandemic plan, period. And um, we're very fortunate, I'd call it providential, that uh, late last year, Silvergate actually did a mock desktop disaster exercise. Uh, we had about a dozen of our executives and senior leadership come in on a Saturday, and we went through about a four-hour exercise where we went through a mock disaster, a, a mock pandemic. And we did that in the fourth quarter of last year. Obviously, we had no idea what was going to happen, but that's the whole point of doing these, these tests. And, and so when this actually started to happen in January, you know, when the coronavirus um, really started to be noticed 
globally, we actually started working through our business continuity plan. We have different levels um, as to whether or not the pandemic has actually hit our shores as it become local to San Diego, et cetera. And so we were doing things uh, quite a bit earlier than I think some of the other folks in terms of starting to consider working remotely. We already have, because we're, we're a global company, we, we have customers all over the world and our customers transact over the send 24-7, 365. So we already are providing service around the clock around the world. That means that we have folks working remotely. So we had a little bit of a playbook. And so we just we just started rolling that out. And so early last week, we were already at about probably between 60 and 70% remote before the governor of California issued the the uh, stay-at-home order on Thursday night. We were very well prepared to get everybody else remote, but we didn't want to do that, you know, kind of in a panic on Friday. So we had decided, you know, let's let, let's have the wire transfer folks come in. A few other folks, I was in the office as well. And so it was, you know, really um, just, again, providential that that this attack. And now I, I also think, by the way, that there was a, a, a it was providential for us, diabolical, I, I will say, for the attacker in the sense sure. that that they essentially were trying to take advantage of. I think if you, if you think about Finastro, a global company, um, they're probably already fairly distributed, but they were probably also transitioning, at least in the U.S., to a kind of a work from home type of environment. And that's when the attack took place. So, um, you know, as frustrating as it was when we were in the trenches, I can't speak highly enough of our partner Finastra in terms of the literally around the clock, all weekend long, constant communication with our team. And, you know, I think the fact that a couple days into this week, Finastra was still working with a handful of clients to get reconnected is probably more the fact that maybe some of those companies didn't have the technical resources and and probably also because maybe some of them are more directly impacted with the coronavirus. Um, so I, I don't think it's any slam against Finastra at all. I think they've really demonstrated their commitment um, to their customers, you know. And so anyway, we're, we're very happy to be up and running, processing at 100% capacity, even though we're working remote. That's super interesting. And just sort of contextualizing this attack in light of coronavirus, it's pretty wild to think that there are folks out there who are that diabolical. But before I cut out because of the Wi-Fi, I I did want to set the scene or the stage for listeners who might not be familiar with this banking infrastructure, right? And they hear a company like Finastra, they've never heard of it, and they don't know that, you know, some of its clients are banks like Goldman Sachs, you guys, uh, Signature Bank as well. Speak to the place in the infrastructure where they sit and the role of Fedwire in day-to-day B2B banking. So uh, again, to contextualize, the Finastra platform is the way that Silvergate, and you just mentioned a couple of other banks as well, they have over 5,000 customers around the world. It's the way that we connect to the Fedwire system. The reason we chose Finastra as our platform is because of their ability um, to help us connect via API, not only to the Fed, but then also to our customers so that we can have essentially straight through processing so that when a customer of ours wants to send a wire, if, if our customer, and think of this as maybe a, a sophisticated cryptocurrency exchange platform, If they want to initiate wires via API, as long as we've done all of the work up front to um, properly uh, authenticate who the customers are, they've done the KYC, et cetera, that, that wire transfer can go from our customer through the Fed via the Finastra system to the Fed and then out to the into the recipient bank in a matter of seconds. To really contextualize this, a lot of our customers that are on the SEND, one of the beauties of the SEND is that it's nearly instantaneous. So if you're a customer of Silvergate and you have an account and you're connected to the SEND, you can push money from your account to an exchange platform and literally hit refresh on your screen, on your account at the exchange. And within a matter of seconds, you see the money sitting in your account at that exchange. Okay, so that's send, that's internal. 
That's um, that system worked without a glitch all through this this outage. When we first enabled Finastra last year, and we started being able to do this straight through wire processing, we had a customer of ours who sent a wire transfer from us to to their account at another bank, and it literally hit that other bank in a matter of seconds. And they reached back out to us and they said, "Hey." Did you guys just use Sen? How did how how did my money get to that other other bank? And it's because we had enabled that that processing that Finastra enables for us, and that the Fed in all, also enables, and then that recipient bank is also um, a Finastra customer, and they had they had also enabled that. And so, this is the type of removal of friction that we're trying to bring to the digital currency ecosystem. And it's it's been our goal ever since we started this six years ago. Uh, it started out clunky, but we've invested millions of dollars over the last six years to to try to take the friction out, starting with the U.S. dollar. Uh, as we discussed, I think a little bit last week when we were talking, you know, we we're now enabling foreign currency exchange. Our customers around the world, um, for instance, in Japan, they've they've said we love the Sen for the U.S. dollar. We'd we'd like the Sen for yen. You know, um, folks in Europe, we'd like the Sen for you know, for the euro, and and so we're attempting to break down the barriers so that our customers that want to get in and out of digital currency from a fiat currency, whether that's the U.S. dollar, the yen, the British pound sterling, Singapore dollar, you name it, we want to be able to move them in and out without friction. So that's that's one of the goals that we have here at Silvergate. So essentially is what you're describing, getting rid of that middleman, Finastra, who sits between you and Fedwire? No, actually, um, it's it's really um, working with Finastra. There's a whole separate discussion that we should have around stable coins, because ultimately, um, where, you know, those of us that really kind of buy into this whole um, digital currency and blockchain ecosystem, we see a world where ultimately, um, you know, maybe folks aren't transacting with these different currencies, but rather they're uh, with the fiat currencies, but rather they're using stable coins, which again, are likely going to be backed by fiat currencies. But the point of this is, is that we will likely still need a partner like Finastra uh, for that on-ramp and off-ramp. But hopefully once folks are in the system, perhaps they can transact just via blockchain and move in and out of, you know, for instance, from Bitcoin back to a U.S. dollar stable coin or to a stable coin in a, uh, backed by another fiat currency. Why do you need that person sitting in between, or rather that company, why do you need that company sitting in between you and Fedwire? Why can't you just link up to their APIs directly? I, I should also explain that um, Finastra also, um, many of the largest banks in the world are customers of Finastra. Uh, that are have, that have instead of using Finastra's hosted system, we use we use their system, and they host it for us, which means that we're connected to them um, via the cloud, if you will. Uh, the largest banks in the world are, have probably purchased the Finastra system and brought it in in house into their own data centers. Okay, so that's that's going to be one of the differences between the money center banks. And then some of the, you know, the the rest of the um, regional banks, community banks, et cetera. And it's really an issue of scale and, uh, you know, resources. And, you know, essentially, we're, we are relying on the size, the heft of a company like Finastra, who does this for thousands of to, companies. You would, you would have to prop up your own sort of data centers, that's right. That Finastra operates currently. Right. And 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 Frank just j- just to finish that that point, we would rather focus on kind of that last mile which is really working with our customers on removing the friction that they experience and um, relying on kind of best in breed partners such as Finastra and really going to who has the best technology in the world. And how can we bring that technology to our customers to solve that that um, that connection and that pain point that they experience right at that transaction friction point? If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. 
Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. Let's go back to how you guys handled this incident. When we spoke last week, you talked about manually getting some of these inbound orders to the Fedwire. How do you go about doing that manually? Sure. So we absolutely have backup processes. But if you if you think about what I was describing in that kind of straight through processing automated world where um, everybody's connected and it's working seamlessly, well, as soon as you shut that off, now you have to revert back to some form of manual intervention. We have a internet banking system. It's our business electronic banking. Um, and our customers that are not um, high volume customers, for instance, maybe they only do a, you know, a couple wires a month, they probably haven't coded to the API to do that sophisticated high volume processing that we were talking about earlier. So what they would more likely do is just sign on to our online banking. And that system was working uh, because that's not part of the Finastra wire payment process. So that online banking system was working. So they could still log in, initiate a wire. But then it, when it hit our side, we would then essentially, we would do a manual callback, verify, you know, so it's, it's taking all of that automation out and taking us back to, candidly, the way most community banks in the country probably still process wires, um, which, which is just something that we had to revert back to. And on a Friday, um, which is typically a higher volume day, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it, it just ended up being that we had a lot of wires that unfortunately we were not able to process on Friday. And I don't, you know, we don't take that lightly. Um, you know, certainly, you know, we apologize to our customers uh, who got caught up in that. Uh, we worked diligently to get every wire out that we possibly could. The Federal Reserve extended the deadlines uh, for processing. Um, but when you go back to a manual process, you know, it's just, you know, you, you get out as many as you can uh, until the Fed shuts you off. Super interesting. We don't really know necessarily whether or not this is tied or rather the degree to which this is tied to COVID-19 and the spread and market panic around that, whether or not it was a nefarious player trying to take advantage of Finastra during this heightened period of volatility and this period in which folks are working remote. But I'd be curious to know just broadly, as a fairly large regional bank, this health economic crisis is impacting Wall Street, but specifically, how is it impacting banks of your size and banks that are in the businesses that you operate in? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And in in one sense, it's probably a little bit too early to tell. And what I mean by that is that a lot of our customers, so Silvergate, on the more traditional banking side, we're primarily a real estate lender. So our our loan book is made up of commercial real estate loans and residential loans. And so if you think about a commercial real estate loan, it might, you know, maybe it's a loan um, to somebody that owns an office building or an industrial building, uh, perhaps a hotel, um, you know, so there's those different asset classes and they're all going to be impacted differently. And so we are absolutely anticipating that we will have customers who will not be able to make their payments. We've all seen um, what the government is attempting to do with the various relief efforts so we will be working with our customers um, that are in need of assistance to help them through this process from a financial perspective. Um, but it is a little bit too early to tell in, in, because we have to work with our customers one-on-one. Um, we are, again, you know, it's somewhat providential that because we made this shift to the cryptocurrency 
market several years ago, we sold our business banking platform to another bank about a year ago. We consolidated from four branches down to two and then sold one of our branches to that same bank that we sold our our business loans to. And so we're very focused on providing services to the digital currency community and then um, some real estate lending. But, but so we're we're a little bit different than most other banks in terms of how this pandemic will um, you know will affect us. What what percentage of your business would you say touches the crypto market? On the deposit side, uh, it's probably um, about ninety percent. So very heavily weighted to the digital currency market. And then on the asset side, because most of our deposits from the digital currency space are deposits from cryptocurrency exchanges, from um, institutional investors, traders, et cetera, we keep most of those funds, those deposit funds, very liquid. So we keep them in cash and short duration securities. And so Consequently, on the asset side, only um, about 50% of our assets are in loans and the rest are in cash and securities. So, so again, we, um, it's just the way that we're set up. We, we've always been a you know, very conservatively run institution. We believe that we have very good asset quality. Nobody's experienced this type of event. You know, so we'll see how, how we perform as, you know, compared to others, but we believe that we're fairly well positioned. It's funny that you describe yourself as... Um a conservative bank, given how much you are <laughs> involved in the crypto market, 90%, as you described, most wouldn't say that's conservative. But I think it's interesting, your point about your position right now being a fairly strong relative to other banks of your size, because you are banking for a lot of these companies that are actually doing fairly well right now, especially the exchanges, giving the volatility all across the board seeing increased volumes. So I guess you uh, aren't seeing any stress on that side. I think Ryan is interested in jumping in. Are you eating? It sounds like like I was eating. No, and I thought I was on mute. So I'm sorry for all the weird sounds. (laughs) What are you you doing out there? Uh, Taking care of dogs, hiking, the usual. You have it Um, better than us. Yeah. But Alan, I wanted to dive into the business side a bit. Just imagine... A lot of the listeners and broader block readers probably aren't as aware of just how critical Silvergate's become in terms of just market structure that a large portion of these crypto market player, players, whether they're exchanges or funds, stablecoin issuers, they interact with on a, on a weekly basis. And I think just the position that Silvergate has put itself in and driving the maturation of that market structure, I think is a pretty critical story especially for the coverage that Frank likes to dive into. So when I think of Send Network, this online network that connects exchanges and investors, enables the instant transfer of dollars, and you have a large portion of the crypto market share, uh, I think your S1 had it upwards of like 75%. I don't know if that's still accurate, but I'm, a, I'm of the view that this network obviously is a moat that you can build additional value added services on top of one area in particular that we discussed last week was send leverage or a margin product for funds. And I'm curious what the appetite for that product has been and the value that Silvergate can provide just given how many avenues of margin currently exist in the market. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. That's that's a that's a great question and a great segue into some of the other things that Silvergate is working on. So we've been talking for um, several months now about send leverage which is unique product that leverages the 24-7 nature of SEN, as well as, um, which obviously is built to leverage the 24-7 nature of the digital currency markets. And the way we view providing leverage in this ecosystem is that um, the, the safest way to do it is if you are connected to a source of liquidity given that the markets trade 24-7. And so um, given that we are banking um, most of the regulated cryptocurrency exchanges, 
And that we also have this, as you were talking about, this network of institutional investors, be they hedge funds, proprietary traders, family offices, um, private equity firms, anybody that is viewing digital currencies as an asset class, they are looking to invest in digital currencies as an asset. Uh, Many of them um, are employing different types of trading strategies. And if you're a trader um, in any of the other financial markets, you often use leverage. And um, now we've seen um, some of the the pitfalls of that here recently with some of the unwinding of the leverage that's been in the system. Um, and so, you know, obviously have to be careful about this, but this is one of the reasons that we think the the structure of send leverage is will be beneficial for this because we can allow our customers who are, a, if they're a customer of Silvergate and they are a customer of an exchange that um, has coded with us for send leverage, then we can allow our customers to borrow money, pledging their Bitcoin as collateral. They can trade with that additional borrowing um, that we've enabled. And in the event that there is a, um, a, a significant drop in the price of Bitcoin, we have the ability to liquidate that collateral 24-7 and pay that loan down. And so the way this works, uh, the example that, that we often use is, let's say we have a customer that, um, that owns a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And so they come to us and they want to borrow against that, that Bitcoin. I, I'm going to speak now about our, our launch partner for the pilot of Send Leverage, um, and that's Bitstamp. So if our, if our customer is also a customer of Bitstamp, And if they're willing to place their million dollars of Bitcoin in custody with Bitstamp, essentially in custody with us, but with Bitstamp as our sub-custodian, now the million dollars in Bitcoin is sitting at Bitstamp, which um, Bitstamp has the ability to liquidate 24-7 on our behalf. And so now we can step in and we can say, okay, well, if you've got a million dollars of Bitcoin that you're pledging to us, we'll give you another million dollars. to, to trade with. So now they have uh, the ability to buy an additional million, let's say, uh, of Bitcoin in this instance. So they own $2 million worth of Bitcoin and they owe us a million dollars. Okay, so that's two to one leverage. I know there are others out there that um, are, might be offering higher leverage. Back as you know, Frank was busting my chops, uh, we, we consider ourselves conservative. And so um, we are um, starting at two to one. And the idea is if the price of Bitcoin goes up, well, then that customer no is... No 100x, no 100x leverage. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so, um, you know, if the price After of Bitcoin... After we get through goes, this crisis, that's when you'll get it out. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we cer- certainly, as the market matures, y- you can think about, you know, maybe higher degrees of leverage. You know, you might also have different triggers for when you might liquidate the Bitcoin collateral to pay down the loan. But the real um, benefit of having the SEN in the middle of this is, you know, if the price of Bitcoin is going down... We can either liquidate or what is more likely to happen in a normal market is our customers will likely use SEN to cover their collateral shortfall by transferring more dollars onto the platform. Most of our, you know, if you think about a proprietary trader, oftentimes they are doing some type of a trading strategy. Maybe they're arbing the spot market with the futures market. Um, you know, back, you know, a couple years ago before Sen, um, there was oftentimes a dislocation um, in the in the price of Bitcoin between one geography and another, right? Um, you know, might be trading at one price in the US and another price over in Asia or over in Europe. And um, so traders um, were arbing that opportunity. And, um, and the last thing that they want to do is have one of their positions kind of stopped out and liquidated. And so the, the beauty of the SEN is um, it would allow our customers to send more dollars in to cover a collateral shortfall so they don't have to liquidate their Bitcoin collateral. So um, we think it's, it's, it's a beautifully designed system. It's fully API enabled 24 seven, you know, we're in the pilot phase now. So we're, we're, we're hoping that, that that will be a big growth driver for us in the future. But we're, you know, we have a, a philosophy of first we crawl, then we walk, then we run. So I think then going off of that, 
would there be a path to offering broader, like traditional prime services that you see, let's say in, in equities and other asset classes, or maybe even custodial offerings down the road? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- that is that is absolutely the direction that we're headed. Um, I think you probably also saw in our prospectus uh, that we have applied for a trust charter from the state of New York uh, with the idea that um, that we would ultimately be able to be our own custodian so that we would be able to hold digital assets as collateral that we could then be um, providing not only custody, but escrow and settlement services and really become, you know, kind of a full service uh, prime, if you will, for the digital currency ecosystem where we are touching both the digital side of the trade and the fiat currency side of the trade as well. What else do you need to build out to become, in a sense, that full-scale prime broker? Yeah, so one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about it is how do we add value to our to our customers um, without kind of duplicating what they're already doing, right? And so a lot of our customers are OTC desks, um, exchanges, and they've they've got a lot of the infrastructure already built. So um, trying to figure out how do we plug into what they're doing and and or they plug into us. And so um, you can envision a future where we might uh, have partnerships with several different potential custodians. Um, so that you know, and what that might look like is is we might be the custodian. Uh, from a legal perspective, but we might be partnering with several custodians as our sub-custodians so that um, it, we can seamlessly move the digital assets from one place to another. The ability to offer settlement services is another service that our customers have asked us for. You know, back to my earlier comments about uh, foreign currency exchange, when we talk to our customers, they say, you know, we, we absolutely trust you um, with the SEN with um, handling the U.S. dollar side of the trade. But in the cryptocurrency markets, because, um, you know, they're not as mature as traditional financial markets, typically on the digital asset side, somebody has to go first. There isn't, um, you know, an escrow agent in the middle of most trades, right? So someone might say, hey, I, I want to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin from you. And, and you say, okay, well, you send me, you know, you send me the million dollars and I'll send you the Bitcoin, right? And they say, oh, no, 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 you send me the Bitcoin first and I'll send you the million dollars, right? So um, if we onboard both those customers on send, then we can, we can represent uh, to both sides that, yes, we see the million dollars, we can lock it up but they still have to then wait for the blockchain um, transaction to take place. And obviously with Bitcoin, you probably want to wait for more than one con- you know, confirmation, especially if you're um, dealing with large dollar amounts. And so we'd like to be able to step in the middle there on the uh, and become a settlement agent for the digital asset side as well, um, so that we are essentially helping our customers as that trusted intermediary on both sides of a digital currency transaction. So, in that sense, are you then becoming the buyer for every seller and the seller for every buyer? Um, no, not at all. Um, because what we don't want to do is take principal risk in that situation. So, we um, you can think about this really as more of as a true escrow agent where um, where we are st- absolutely standing in the middle, but we are not bringing them together. You know, that price discovery, that transaction is essentially negotiated um, away from us. And then they just come to us and, and they say, we would like you to be the um, escrow agent or the settlement agent in the middle of this trade. And and so that's that's the way we look at it. We We absolutely have to be able to you know, we're already custodying. If you think about it in terms of custody, we already have custody of their U.S. dollars, right? They've deposited it with us. Um, we need to have the ability to custody the digital asset. So that's where the custody piece comes in. And there, then, therefore, we can be the settlement agent in the middle on the digital side, just like we are on the, on the um, fiat currency side. Pivoting now to lending do you guys offer lines of credit to cryptocurrency firms? And because from our perspective, we're seeing a lot of new folks coming out and offering lending services. Some people are talking about whether or not there's a, a looming bubble. Do you guys lend out to the same clients you bank with? We do not, uh, the, with the exception of uh, a Bitcoin collateralized loan. So if one of our existing customers in this 
in, in the cryptocurrency space comes to us and wants to borrow money uh, to fund their business, we're, we're going to want collateral. And since, as I mentioned earlier, we sold off our business lending. So if you think about these companies as businesses, um, you know, first of all, uh, if you're not an exchange, the exchanges, as you mentioned earlier, are, are probably doing just fine, you know, in, in this period. But a lot of the other companies, if they're kind of pre-revenue or, you know, they have a burn rate, they, they have not yet figured out how to make money with their offering, um, that's not a, that's not a company that we're, we're going to be able to finance. Um, but if they're long Bitcoin, um, we'll absolutely uh, take their Bitcoin as collateral and, and provide them a loan that way. How, how many of those loans do you have outstanding? What does the book look like? Yeah. So, um, probably as a public company, probably shouldn't um, talk about specific numbers. Um, but I will say that that offering as well is very early, so if you think about send leverage, we're in a pilot. Uh, similarly, with that type of lending that uh, we were just talking about, um, the number is not zero, um, but it's still it's still very nascent for us. And one of the reasons, um, by the way, I should just mention this: we started talking with our regulators about lending against Bitcoin early last year, so early uh, two thousand, maybe second quarter two thousand nineteen, and. Um, and so, you know, we went through the whole process of explaining to them how we viewed it, how we were thinking about it, et cetera, why we thought it was permissible. Um, they agreed with us regarding the permissibility. So we, what we wanted to do was set up a system and then, um, you know, get some loans out there and see um, how it works, right? And one of the things I was hoping for during the pilot was that we would see a little bit of volatility in the price of Bitcoin. Um, so that we could test our ability to liquidate and our ability, to, you know, et cetera. And uh, I have not been disappointed here. Um, we've seen some volatility in the price of Bitcoin, and I'm happy to say that 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 the systems are working. So, um, so there's yeah. no there's no signs of stress. There's no signs of um, an uptick in in defaults or anything like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, I have to be careful about how I say things um, as a public company. Um, and, and yeah, of course. <laughs> and and so I'm not going to, uh, you know, I can't answer that question, um, you know, but I would encourage everybody to wait for our first quarter earnings release and our, and our 10Q and um, all the answers will be there. And I know Ryan will be waiting with beta. I'm sure he will. For sure. <laughs> I'm already building the model now, actually, Alan. There you go. Quarantine life. Um, I actually wanted to kind of step back, actually, away from Silvergate. We talked about something interesting last week that I think is, a, is an underrated story, just kind of lost in the the furor of last week. But Square getting approved, an industrial loan company. Why this is relatable to you, I didn't even realize this, but I guess Silvergate was an ILC pre-2008. Was that right? That's right. That's right. And yep. for for people listening, uh, the reason why Square getting that approval last week was notable in my in my opinion was is it hasn't been approved in over twelve years an ILC uh, charter. And so when I, when we spoke with Alan last week, I'm just kind of asking him more broadly um, if this is something that's interesting and and, and notable. Uh, he had some interesting comments, and I, I kind of wanted to see if you could share that just with. with some of our listeners, just the context of maybe why this got approved, what this could mean for other applications down the line, and even, I guess, what an ILC is. Sure. So, I, first of all, I think the approval um, for Square is is absolutely huge, and um, I want to congratulate them. Um, I I honestly didn't give it high odds, um, and and it has nothing to do with Square, and it has everything to do with what you just mentioned, Ryan, which is the fact that industrial loan charters have not been approved in well over a decade, and um, there's a reason for that. And without getting too technical, um, the primary difference between an industrial loan company and every other FDIC-insured regulated financial institution out there is that every other bank, if you're a commercial bank or a savings bank, if you have a parent company, if you aren't directly owned by shareholders, but rather if you have a parent company, by definition, that parent company has to be a bank holding company 
and it has to, and you're therefore regulated by the Federal Reserve. So, and we'll just use the example of Silvergate. The public entity, Silvergate Capital Corp., is a bank holding company. So, if you own shares of Silvergate, the stock symbol is SI. If you look that up, um, Silvergate Capital Corporation is a bank holding company. The bank holding company's primary subsidiary is Silvergate Bank. Silvergate Bank is the entity that all of our customers interact with. Um, Silvergate Bank is a California chartered state commercial bank. And we're a member of the Federal Reserve and our deposits are insured by the FDIC. So um, that's the structure, the corporate structure for Silvergate. Um, And we talked earlier, I'm going to digress for just a second. We talked earlier about forming a trust company in the state of New York for the digital asset services. Under this structure, the trust company would become a sister company to the bank and a subsidiary of the parent company, Silvergate Capital Corp. So Silvergate Capital would then own both Silvergate Bank and um, the trust company under that structure. So now let's, let's zoom back out and talk about ILCs. An industrial loan company, its deposits are insured by the FDIC, but it does not fall under the purview of the Federal Reserve and the Bank Holding Company Act. Therefore, Square as a company, as a corporate entity, Square is not a bank, right? Um, They are a money service business, but they're not a bank. And they need a bank to connect with um, or multiple banks to connect with in order to offer the services that they offer to their customers. But Square has been approved to own a subsidiary that is going to be an industrial loan company. And that is huge. And it hasn't happened in over, uh, as you mentioned, over 12 years. And um, in fact, when I joined Silvergate, we were an industrial loan company and we were trying to get rid of that charter at the time because um, as an industrial loan company, um, you cannot um, have demand deposits, you, which means that you're typically not going to bank businesses The other reason back then was industrial loan companies were under somewhat of a regulatory moratorium because both Walmart and Home Depot had been attempting to get into banking by buying an industrial loan company because an industrial loan company can be, in fact, be owned by a non-bank holding company. So it it gets um, very complicated quickly, but um, there are less than 100 industrial loan companies in the country. And the fact that, and there hasn't been one issued um, as, as we've, as we've said several times now, and the fact that Square just got approved, I think is monumental. And I think any, any FinTech that has been looking to um, become a bank uh, um, should stand up and take notice because I don't know what the approval process is like. I know Square has been working on it for a while Um and I, I can't, you know, I, I don't know how they got approved, why they got approved, but I think it's huge. And I, I think banks should, should stand up and take notice because uh, Square is a very impressive company and um, they are about to own a bank. Well, that raises a really interesting question, Alan, which is, are we going to see other fintechs attempt to go down this, this route? Yeah, I would I would assume so. Um, in the announcement, I think there are actually two that were approved. I focused on Square as as the other one. Yeah, it was like a student lender. I think it was called Nelnet. Right, right. Um, You know, I know there there are other fintechs who have been attempting to go down the path of of getting an OCC charter uh, under the National Banking Act, um, and the OCC has been working to try to create a fintech um, charter, if you will. You know, for fintechs to come in under the National Bank Act. And and that's been challenged by the state banks around the country or the state banking organizations around the country. So I would think that anybody that's been looking to try to become a national bank or get one of those fintech charters um, might, you know, might hit the pause button and take a quick look at, um, you know, how the um, how Square got their ILC approval. That's definitely interesting. Um, and obviously, we're not just talking about Square because they sponsor this podcast. <laughs> it is pretty significant news, I think, for the industry. Well, I think we have unpacked a ton of interesting things. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And 
walking us through what happened last week with Finastra and some of these very fascinating complex topics and issues underpinning both the crypto market, traditional banking, and fintech. What does um, the rest of your week look like? What are you excited about? I feel like every day is a year and every week is a decade, but you're working hard over there. In La Jolla or La Jolla? That's right. La Jolla. Yes, That's right. we're in La Jolla. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're in La Jolla. And um, yeah, most of our folks are working remote, as we discussed earlier. Uh, fortunately, I'm looking outside right now. It's um, partly cloudy, but the sun is shining. And, you know, Ryan mentioned earlier, spend a lot of time going on walks, walking the dog, etc. You know, I think everybody's doing a little bit more of that these days. Um, but importantly, um, you know, I'll put a little plug in. I mean, we're absolutely open for business. We are still working through our pipeline of um, prospects, folks that want to join Silvergate, become a part of SEN. And, um, you know, we are, we are absolutely 100% open for business. All payment systems are online and at full capacity. And um, if you're out there and um, you're looking to, to get into crypto, you know, uh, Silvergate is a crypto-friendly bank. Are you seeing, given the volatility, an increase in interest among non-crypto native firms, a decrease in interest? What do those inbounds look like? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. And I will tell you, um, in the last week or so, um, I haven't got an update because we've been focused on on um, making sure that we're providing service to our existing customers. Um, as of a couple of weeks ago, it you know the inbound had not slowed down yet. If, if anything, um, it had picked up a little bit. And, um, you know, obviously with, uh, a couple of weeks ago with, uh, with the price of Bitcoin plummeting, I think that caused everybody to stand up and say, Hey, what the heck happened? I thought this was a, you know, safe haven, a store of value. And, um, you know, I think I, I've, I've heard a couple of folks say, and I think this is absolutely true. I, I mean, you know, when, when you've got markets seizing up and there's a potential liquidity crisis, you know, you sell everything, you know, if you have to sell something, um, you don't get to sell what you want. You have to sell what you, you sell, what you can. And this is probably the other side of, of the cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin as a store of value is that it is also extremely liquid. So, um, and it's liquid 24 seven, right? This is, we were talking earlier about send leverage. And so if you're holding, if you're holding multiple assets, and you need liquidity, there is one that, that's, that you can sell immediately, 24-7, and that's Bitcoin. And, and so uh, as disappointing as it was to see the price plummet, I, it's, it's certainly um, understandable given the ability for folks to get liquidity 24-7. No, that's a good point. And, and juxtaposed with the difficulties we're hearing about getting in and out of even in treasuries, it, it makes sense that, you know, to your point, people are trying to get cash from wherever they can. Alan, thanks again for coming on during these interesting times for all markets. And ladies and gentlemen, we're excited to be back. We're excited to be recording new episodes with new guests across trading and fintech and crypto. We'll catch up with you next time. Thanks so much. This podcast is about pushing awareness and inspiring growth in the crypto industry. I can't reiterate enough that if you're a business owner, executive, or active developer in the space, I highly suggest checking out Blockset. Blockset provides a robust, unified API that provides easy access to multi-chain data. Skip the tedious data normalization process and start building immediately at a fraction of the cost. It's live now and it's on their site for you to explore Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today.